Well, good morning again. So glad you are here. Actually, I'm glad I'm here. It's great to be with you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Bob Schneider. I served on the staff here many years as missions pastor. I actually uh, retired from here about five years ago. And uh, last December, they asked me to come back out of retirement. You can call that pastoral recycling. Uh, if you like baseball, they called me out of the bullpen, but uh, this is my home. This has been my church home for over 50 years, and uh, thank you. There is no truth to the rumor my ordination papers were written on papyra. That's not true. But uh, have so many great memories of this sanctuary, this worship center of great services and sermons and mission conferences and concerts. Uh, I remember as a college student standing right up there where they were building this sanctuary. There were no pews or carpeting, but watches being built and just so treasure. You know, sometimes people ask me, do you get nervous when you preach in this room? And I said, yes, but not for the reason you think. Uh, not because of you guys. You guys are wonderful. But uh, just the tradition and the history of this pulpit Many of you that are new don't know this. In the first 75 years of the chapel, we only had three senior pastors in 75 years. That's unheard of. I had the privilege of serving with uh, Pastor David Burnham and Newt Larson and learned a lot from them. Although, one thing that Newt did that always bugged me is every time he preached and he got up, he showed pictures of his grandchildren. It's like, Newt gets up and preached. I have no idea how that happened. But those are, those are my uh, 10 grandchildren. I know I'm much too young to have 10 grandchildren, and it's not fair that they're the smartest and the cutest around, but I, I love them dearly, and I so appreciate my family. I have three wonderful sons and three wonderful daughter-in-laws, and uh, as many of you know, I lost my wife, Myra, a little over three years ago, and my family means so much to me. Another thing that uh, I feel the weight of is just the importance of making God's Word clear. You know, my job is not to tell you all of my great ideas about the Christian life. It's to help explain to you what God has said about the Christian life. I, uh, I teach two great ABFs, and my class hosts sometimes will pray before I get up, and they'll say, Lord, open our hearts to whatever God has for us this morning. Uh, or they say, open our hearts to whatever Bob has for us this morning. And I said, Bob doesn't have anything this morning, but God does. And we want to study the Word together. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're in Acts 14. And if you turn in your Bibles, I believe it's on page 923 in the Pew Bible. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please feel free to take one. We want everyone to have God's Word. Before we jump into chapter 14, I want us to review where we've been because last week in chapter 13 when Tim was finishing, that was a huge pivot point, not only in the book of Acts, but to the whole New Testament. Uh, when you think of Paul, I guess you could say when we last left our hero, he was shaking the dust off his sandals, you remember, because they'd rejected the gospel. And if you're already in Acts 14, just look up the page a little bit. In verse 46, he says, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourself worthy of your eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And then he reads this quote, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring your salvation to the ends of the earth. 
That was written by Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 6, 700 years before Christ. Sometimes we had this funny idea that the Great Commission was an afterthought. You know, Jesus at the Mount of Olives, he's getting ready to ascend to heaven. He goes, oh, I forgot to tell you something, disciple the nations. It wasn't that way at all. God's plan from the very beginning was to reach the Gentiles, which is us. His plan was all peoples to have the gospel. And if you remember, way back in Genesis 12, he appears to Abraham, right? In Genesis 12, verse 3, he issues a promise. He says, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Not nations like the United Nations, but peoples, people groups, ethnicity, cultures, the whole human mosaic. And I believe that every major story in the Old Testament is about that, from Abraham through the prophets and the Psalms and the minor prophets, every story has a message of God reaching the world. In fact, I have a whole sermon on that, and if they invite me back, I'll share that with you sometime. So we're in the book of Acts, and now God is taking this eternal plan and beginning to work it out, and he starts with Pentecost. Now the question is, why did he start there? I mean, couldn't he, the Holy Spirit just come down when they were in the upper room? But God had a reason for starting at Pentecost because the whole world had come there. And in Acts 2, let's take a look at who is actually there. See on your screen, there's Parthians, Medes, Enomites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, near Cyrene, Rome. Now those names might not mean a lot to you, but today there were people there from Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Libya. What better way to get the gospel to the world when the Holy Spirit comes down is to gather the whole world there so that they can take it back. By the way, did you notice that one place in there, Cyrene? Do you remember somebody else in scripture from Cyrene? Simon of Cyrene that carried the cross. I truly believe that Simon of Cyrene was there at Pentecost and he became a Christian and took the gospel back to what is now Libya. Isn't it amazing that the gospel probably went to Africa before it went to Europe? That's what God does. He takes the gospel out. Now, of course, when the gospel went out from Jewish tradition and culture to the Gentiles, there were little alarm bells like, oh, is this the same thing? Can they really have the gospel like we did? Every time it went to a different group, God poured out his spirit as a sign. Remember, several weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 8 because... Uh, Philip went to Samaria and he took the gospel to the Samaritans. When that happened, that caught the attention of the people in Jerusalem. It says in 8.14, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria to check it out. And they share the gospel. They authenticate that these people have truly come to Christ. And look at the results in the next verse. In the next verse in Acts 8, it says, then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And then the progression goes a little further. You remember when we were in Acts 10, it, Peter has the job of taking the world to the Gentiles. Remember, he's going to go see Cornelius, but God has to do a work in his heart first. So he starts out with his own heart. He said to them, you're well aware that's against the law for a Jew to associate with the Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone 
impure or unclean. Good lesson to us that we never look down on someone because there's different. So he does share the gospel with them. And then look at the results that we see after he shares the gospel. In verse 44, it talks about how they responded. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message. Now, I think one of the most amazing stories in Scripture is in Acts chapter 11. It looks back on the stoning of Stephen. You remember that? A great persecution broke out. That persecution led to the spread of the gospel. Isn't it great how God works? A bad thing's happened, persecution, and the gospel goes out. We see it all the way through history. Well, here in Acts chapter 11, the persecution has uh, come to the church and people are scattered. Let me read you from uh, Acts chapter 11 because it just disappeared. Now those who've been scattered in the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch telling the message only to Jews. So far so good, but listen to this. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now think about that. An international group of missionaries from Cyprus and Cyrene share the gospel. They plan an international church. This church that sends Paul and Barnabas out is a true international church. And notice there were missionaries from Cyrene. I really believe that they were probably converts of Simon of Cyrene who took the gospel. They take the gospel to Antioch and plant this church. So Antioch is where we're planted this morning. In Acts 13 and 14, we've been in Antioch. And if you look at a map, you'll see that Antioch is right above Israel. It's kind of on the border between Lebanon and Syria. It's actually in modern-day Turkey. And that's where they launch out from. And Paul and Barnabas are sent out from Antioch on a divine task, on a great adventure. Now imagine going several hundred miles, walking and on a boat. I mean, I don't think there are any VRBOs. There are no cruise ships. I don't think they got trip insurance. But they're leaving on uh, what can only be described as a great adventure. Now, for those of you that are fans of Lord of the Rings, and I certainly hope you are, you remember when Sam and Frodo took off, they had the ring of power, which was called what? My precious. Well, when Paul and Barnabas took off, they had something much more precious. They had the gospel, the power of the gospel that was going to change the world and turn the world upside down. They start out, remember a couple weeks ago in Cyprus, that's where Barnabas was from, which is natural. Cyprus then sent out their own missionaries. It became a sending area. Cyprus is a wonderful place. My wife Myra and I were there several years ago, and it was a meeting of all the Arab Christians from 19 countries. And the conference was in Arabic. We had headphones on. And they're sharing what God was doing in their countries. And it became a launch pad. And there's a ministry there that I'd love you to discover. You can look it up on the internet. It's called Sat7. They have a satellite ministry that broadcasts the gospel in Arabic to all 19 Arabic nations. It also broadcast in Turkey and all the Turkic-speaking people. And it broadcast in Iranian to the Iranian people. And millions of people are hearing the gospel. So Cyprus has a long history of missions, if you will. So now in chapter 14, we're going to dive right in. They're in their first stop, which is Iconium, and we're going to look at the first seven verses. I'll be reading from uh, the NIV, so it may sound a little different, but not that much. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. 
There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, other with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach. So the gospel comes to Iconia. It says it's the city of Galatia. We know Galatia from Galatians. It was a Greek city with Greek culture, Greek language. And it says that the apostles, that Paul, they went first to the synagogue. Now you'd be right by saying, wait a minute, Paul. <laughs> Didn't you just say in Acts 13, we now turn to the Gentiles, you guys have rejected it? True, but keep in mind there's an important principle that we find in Romans chapter 1 where Paul's explaining his philosophy. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So he does go to the synagogue. And it says here, Luke writes, they spoke so effectively that many believed. Really? Why were they so effective? Was it, was it because of their great eloquence? Was Paul so eloquent? I don't think so. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 2, here's what he says. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I believe they were so effective because they were doing what we're doing this morning. They were preaching the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and powerful. There's a wonderful verse in Isaiah 55.11 says, So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it will accomplish that which I purpose. So I think they are effective because he was speaking the word of God. Now, it says that many Jews and Greeks believed there were Gentile converts to Judaism. and They were called proselytes, and many believed but then opposition comes. They tried to shut Paul down. I think this might be the first example of cancel culture, right? You know, they had cancel culture 2,000 years ago. They tried to shut down, but it says they kept preaching. They didn't give up. They preached faithfully. How long? We don't know. But it also says right here in the text that the Lord enabled them to do miracles. Why was that? Well, we've kind of seen this pattern already, right? That when the gospel comes to a new people, God authenticates it, not only the message, but the messenger with miracles or signs and wonders. In fact, Paul, when he was defending his ministry later in 2 Corinthians, he actually explains this in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. He says, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of the true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. So that was an authentication of his ministry, just as it was with Peter. So the city's divided. Do we believe the Jews or do we believe the apostles? Now, it's interesting they call Barnabas an apostle because he didn't actually walk with Jesus, but he was part of the circle of the apostles. The word apostello means sent one. So those group that were sent with the apostles were often also called apostles, and yet opposition arises. In fact, they're going to stone him to death. The apostles hear about it, and they flee. And you might say, flee? Why did you flee? Don't you trust God? 
Can't you trust God for your safety? Keep in mind that God has always led different people in different ways. Let's be very careful about that. You think in the Old Testament, when Daniel was threatened by the king, he stayed, right? But when David was threatened by Saul, he fled. Later on in Acts, in Acts 18, Paul is threatened, and the Lord says, I have many people in this city, so he stayed. And yet here and other times, Paul fled. God can lead godly people in different ways. Look at the world today and the people that live in very, very persecuted countries. Some of them stay, some of them leave. We have to understand that. But keep in mind, even when Paul and Barnabas fled, it's not just that they were fleeing from someplace, they were fleeing to Lystra. So let's pick up the story in verse 8 through 10. In verse 8 through 10, what happens is now they have to take the gospel to a more secular world. I'll just read the first uh, few verses, 8 through 10. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed. He called out, stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Now, apparently, there was no synagogue in this city, so what is Paul doing? I think he's doing street preaching. I think it's interesting that Luke describes this man's disability in three ways. Crippled in his feet, lame at birth, never walked. Okay, we get it, Luke. He's trying to emphasize this guy was really handicapped. This wasn't the guy that goes to the faith theater and says, I have low back pain. This is a guy that was truly, used, Luke uses the word, crippled. And notice how he responded. You know, Paul says, get up. It says, he jumped up. This is the exact same Greek words as he used in Acts 3 when Peter healed the crippled man. It says he jumped up. I think Luke was trying to demonstrate this is the same kind of miracle. And of course, it was an astounding, astounding miracle because we're going to see in a moment what happened. But notice too, it says, Paul saw that the man had faith to be healed. Faith and healing are often together, but you have to be so careful with that. You have to be so careful that you don't guilt trip people. Does the fact you have faith guarantee that you're going to be healed? No, of course not. If that were true, my wife Myra would still be alive. We had faith. But keep in mind, we live in a fallen world. It rains on the just and the unjust. Christians get in car accidents. Christians get cancer. And we have to understand that God has put us into a fallen world, yet he walks with us through the pain. Even Paul, later on in his life, in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. It's one of his disciples that he couldn't heal. But this was a genuine miracle. The people are astounded. And look what they do. Let's look at 11 through 13. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to sacrifice to them. 
What's going on here? Well, there was a legend in Lystra that in some time in the ancient past, the god Zeus, he was the chief god, and Hermes, who was the messenger, came down, and one couple welcomed them. The rest of the city didn't, and they killed all of them. The people may have been thinking of that. Now, they called Barnabas Zeus, probably because Martus was the older of the two men and probably larger. In fact, it's funny, there's a tradition in the second century, one of the elders in the early church had a tradition about Paul. They said he was small, bald, and had crooked legs. Well, I don't know if that's true, but they probably had that physical appearance. And Paul was the speaker, so they called him the messenger. But notice the other mistake they make. God does this wonderful miracle, and they want to give credit to Paul and Barnabas. We can do that too. God does something wonderful, and we focus on the messenger. We've got to be so careful about that. We all have people that we admire, people that are great speakers or leaders or something. And instead of focusing God, we focus on the person. You know, even at the chapel, when you're talking about healing, we've had a long history here that someone asked the elders to come and pray and anoint and throw, we do that. We always send two pastors, never one. Why? Well, if you send one pastor and he prays, someone's going to either get healed or not healed. And then, they, oh, it's because the way he prayed. No. We always have two because God gets the credit. And I was just saying, all of life, let's always remember, always remember to thank God. Remember, Pastor Larson often used that <clears throat> British phrase, river crossed, bridge forgotten. Now, <clears throat> look at how Paul begins to address them in 1415 because it's kind of a shift in, uh, in what happens. In 1415, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. So they may not have understood the Laconian language, but they saw the sacrifices coming and they're very upset. It says they tore their clothes. There's a tradition that when a devout Jew heard blasphemy, they're to tear their clothes. Even if you remember the trial of Jesus, when Jesus said that he was the son of God, the high priest tore their robes. That was a sign you're hearing blasphemy. So they were very upset. And they begin by turning their attention, they said, look, we are just like you. They're establishing common ground. That's a good principle for ministry, even in these days. When you're dealing with someone from a different background, from a different faith, establish common ground, whether it's Muslim, Jew, another faith tradition. By the way, did you know that Muslims and Jews and Christians all look to Abraham as their father? It's a good place to start. And notice, too, as they're establishing this bridge and, and this common ground, they focus on the positive. We know that the gospel has the bad news, that we are sinners, we're separated, but they start and they say, we are bringing you good news. That wonderful word, euangelion, means good news or gospel. And we must never forget that this really is good news. I still remember, it was so funny. My wife and I were leading a discipleship group and I was in seminary. We had five couples. And this one couple was from out west and Eric was uh, the husband, and he'd grown up in a very liberal uh, Protestant denomination. And he was sharing his testimony, he says, I always thought you evangelicals were talking about being born against. I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, you were against everything. Let's not be those people. <laughs> we need to be people that focus on the good 
news. And that's what they did. And by the way, notice the balance of his message. Because he talks further, he tells them to turn from worthless idols to the living God. That's another New Testament principle. The Bible never gives a negative without following with a positive. We turn from, we turn to, and even Paul, remember when he was teaching later in Ephesians 4, he says, put off the old self, put on the new self. So there's always that wonderful balance. And I would say in, in all the issues of life, there's going to be that balance that we've been for and against, leave, go. Uh, think of the issue of abortion right now. You know, I've been involved in the pro-life movement for over 40 years, and I'm still rejoicing in the overturning of Roe versus Wade. But keep in mind, we have always from the beginning said we're against abortion, but we're pro-life. We're against the killing of the child, but we're in favor of life from conception to natural death. We pro-life of the baby and the mother. There's always that wonderful balance, if you will. So now you see another shift in how they actually try to explain the gospel. In verse 16 through 18, it says, In the past he let all nations go their own way, yet he not left himself without a testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. So in this passage, what's happening is they are understanding their audience. In Pisidia and Iconian, they went right to the scriptures. Later on, in Acts 17, when they're in Athens on Mars Hill, they talk about the philosophers because these are philosophy people. These people here didn't know the Jewish scriptures. They didn't know the history of the Jewish people. So he begins with what? He begins with nature. And he talks about creation and natural revelation, even conscience and culture. He said he's not left himself without a witness in the history of peoples. Did you know that God hides the gospel even in culture? I just read about this recently. In the ancient Chinese language, there are elements of the truth of God's word. If you go to the ancient Chinese characters, you know, they're characters. 2,000 years before Paul, the old language, the word for righteousness was a lamb over a man. Isn't that interesting? And there's a, a story about a great flood, but rather than water, it's a boat with eight people on it. God has revealed himself in so many amazing ways. Now, they had the right message, at the right people, at the right, does that guarantee success? <laughs> Fortunately, no. In 19 and 20, it says, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. People are fickle, aren't they? <laughs> so easily swayed. So these Jewish agitators come from outside. They stir everybody up. Uh, they, they stone Paul thinking he's killed. You know, outside agitators are never good. They're never good for any person. They're not good for a city or a community. They, they, they cause trouble. But it's a principle that we need to understand. Opponents of Christianity are not interested in coexistence. It drives me crazy when I see that coexist bumper sticker because the opponents of Christianity are not interested in coexistence or real dialogue. 
I spent half my day a week ago Saturday with a group of pro-life friends at one of our pro-life centers picking up broken glass and scrubbing graffiti of an attack they made. And it's just a reminder, the gospel is a threat to our culture. In fact, we are a threat to our culture. What did Jesus say in John 15? He said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. Now, I think one of the most amazing things this passage is right there in 1920, it says, you know, after they stoned him, they picked him up. It says, after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Would you do that? <laughs> Would you run back in the city? I think probably what happened is there was an understanding that he was going to leave, and they did leave. They went about 60 miles away to Derby, and now we see a shift. They've been evangelizing, evangelizing. They're going to continue evangelizing Derby, but this is a major shift to where they're going to focus on making disciples. So in 21 through 25, there's kind of a, a new focus here. It says they preached the good news in that city, Derby, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia. And when they preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. So there's a great response. It says a large number of disciples. This word for disciple, mathetes, is the same word that's used in the Great Commission, make disciples. So they are having people come to Christ and they are committed to discipleship, which is why they turn back. By the way, this city of uh, Leicester Derby, it's so interesting that this is probably where Timothy and his mother came to Christ because right after this in Acts 16, talks about them coming to Derby and Leicester. It says, where a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was a Jewish and a believer. So this instance here in Acts uh, 14, 21 is probably when Timothy and his mother came to Christ. Now they go back. You're thinking, how could they go back to where they've been rejected? Well, we don't know the complete story, but now they're going back to work with Christians, those who have already followed Christ, to disciple them and follow up. Many times in a Muslim country today, you may not be able to evangelize, but you may be working with the Coptic church in Egypt or a Christian school in Pakistan or something. Well, they are working with believers now. They're going back, but they are totally committed to seeing them grow in Christ. I call this spiritual pediatrics. That's what it is, spiritual. These are new babes in Christ. When you bring a new baby home from the hospital, you say, okay, uh, food's in the cupboard, formula's in the refrigerator, we're going out tonight. No, we have to give milk to newborn babes and, of course, later solid food. And Paul and Barnabas are committed to coming and teaching. And notice the two words there. It says they came to strengthen, but also to encourage Strengthen means the inner man. I think the ESV says strengthen their soul. In other words, to build them up spiritually, that they would be spiritually stronger, if you will. And then the word encourage literally means to come alongside. It's even used of the Holy Spirit sometimes as the paraclete, one who comes alongside to encourage. Often, when Paul uses this word, it's a little stronger. It's exhort. You know, Paul was never afraid to say hard things, was he? I mean, it says here in the actual verse in 22, 
we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. He didn't sugarcoat it. Remember what he said in 2 Timothy 3? He's talking to Timothy and he shoots straight. He says, in fact, everyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hate to tell you that, but that's not a threat. That's a promise. There's no threats in the Bible, just promises. So that's a promise. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So he is sharing that with them. And then he knows that he and Barnabas can't stay. They can't stay and leave the church. So what they do, it says they appoint elders in every church. Remember, we just did a series on it. This is the first time elders have been mentioned since when? Since early in Acts in Jerusalem. And remember, they appointed men who are what? Full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And that's what they're doing here. They're appointing elders in each church. Remember, the elders had three basic jobs. They were to shepherd and care for people, and they were to lead or oversee, and they were to teach. So he committed them at this time with that leadership in these churches. And it's a reminder, the church needs not only edification, it needs some organization too. And there was that. So now they make the turn. They're going to head back to our home, head to the coast, get on a ship, and they're going back to Antioch, and they're going to have the first ever missions conference. This is so fantastic. I love this passage. So verse 26. From Ataya, they sailed to Antioch, where they'd been committed to the grace of God for the work that had now been completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time. So it's 47 AD. They've been gone about a year. These two guys planted four churches in one year. It's unbelievable. The fruit of what God had done. Antioch's their home church, so they're coming home. They're coming home to the church that had laid hands on them, that had commissioned something out. And it says here that the whole church gathered to hear them. It's a missions conference. There is nothing more exciting in my mind than when a church sends out missionaries, particularly when it sends out its own son and daughters, and then they come back in this room and they hear what God has been doing. They hear the missionaries share and report on what God has been doing, and everybody's encouraged. And notice two things. They shared what God has been doing. It's God's message, God's word, the gospel. The Holy Spirit has been preparing the hearts of people. He's empowering them to speak. So they're sharing what God has been doing through them, right? Through them. And then it says that the focus is the fact the gospel has come to the Gentiles. That which God had always planned. I have such fond memories of being in this room and hearing the gospel going to people that have never heard the gospel before. So what God is doing here is he's taking what he promised way back in Genesis 12, all the way through the Old Testament and the Pentecost, and now it's happening. And they're reporting at this first mission conference what's going on. I hope that you're excited about getting the gospel to the world. The day of missions is not over. I hope you're excited about just the strategies that we have today. I mean, we have so many ways of getting the gospel with, with, with satellite and the internet and Bible translation and so many different strategies. I hope that you'll continue to pray and support missions and missionaries that are out there. I hope you use the prayer guides that the chapel provides. I know many of you get prayer guides from different missionaries and mission agencies. 
I hope you pray for the persecuted church. Don't forget, you know, we have so many persecuted in India and other countries. There's groups like Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors that have great information and guides to that. I hope you pray for those that have never heard the gospel, the unreached peoples, the people in some of the closed countries. There's over a billion people in the world today that have never even heard of Jesus Christ. And don't forget the gospel that God has brought the world to hear the gospel here. God has brought the world to our doorstep. I think of North Hill where there's so many uh, refugees and immigrants and the great work that Urban Vision, our own Nancy Ware is doing among them. And I think about how God has brought the world to the University of Akron with international students and the great work that Stephen Morris and his team does. And some of you have done in your ABF with helping with Friday night dinners. And I think of our own Chinese church and Vietnamese church and how they reach so many people that we could probably never reach. Friends, I hope this morning that you have in your heart what God has in his heart because God's heart has never changed. I hope you've caught a vision this morning that you'll be part of that vision, that you'll be part of that vision that everyone gets to hear the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us this gospel that is for everyone. Thank you that your plan is for all people to hear the gospel. You say in your word that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all will come to repentance. Help us, Father, to be able to say with you that we're not willing that any should perish, but that all will come to repentance. Thank you, Father, that you've entrusted us with this precious gospel. Help us to be faithful in sharing the good news of the gospel personally, but also to pray and support those who are sharing the gospel around the world. Help us to continue to work that you, the work that you began here in Acts so that you receive praise and glory from every people and every tongue around the world. Help us as a church to be like the church in Antioch, to continue to send out missionaries to reach the world for Christ. And as we do that, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we'll make sure to give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a message from The Chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about The Chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.